0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The first three chapters of Matthew portray a confrontation between the God of Abraham and the many false gods and kings that rule the earth. Even as these kings, represented here by Herod, struggle to cling to power at the visible center, the Lord moves the center of power to the invisible margin. This move deludes the powerful, allowing them a false sense of comfort, since in their minds, out of sight means out of mind. But the Torah is on the move in Matthew, and it moves with force, disempowering rulers both inside Jerusalem and beyond. As David proclaims in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 240 of the Bible as Literature podcast on our Tuesday show this week. We talked about how the biblical God stands out and is special with respect to other kings and other gods. And the example Father Paul gave was that God can be seated on his throne in the presence of all the kings of the earth who are standing. But as the one seated on his throne in judgment, he stands out among all these deities and all of these rulers who claim to be the son of their deity or whatever. And it relates very much to the progression we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Matthew. Because you ask, why is it so important in Scripture that God sit on his throne and scoff at the other kings? And the answer is very straightforward. Once the kings are ridiculed, by the existence of God on his throne, who stands out as the power who has dominion over the living and the dead. First and foremost, he emasculates the power of the false gods and the false kings in the mind of the addressee of the story. And once that happens, the person who was oppressed by the false king or the false deity can find hope on the one hand, but on the other hand, everyone both the oppressed and the oppressor come to an understanding that they shouldn't be following these false kings because they really don't have power they're temporary they really don't exist they can't achieve what the biblical god seated on his throne can achieve for the human race and of course in the new testament in the paulian corpus what god is achieving through the standing up and the standing out of Jesus Christ is fellowship with the nations. Because if the king, the false god, is emasculated, he can no longer hold sway over people to commit violence against each other or to alienate one another from the very important table of fellowship in Paul's letters. This
1: fits the major theme of Matthew so far, which is
0: confrontation
1: with the kings, confrontation with power, inside power, outside of power. We have everything bad that's happening in Jerusalem. Everyone who's smart is avoiding Jerusalem, all the way from the Magi to John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Everyone is avoiding the centers of power to go live and dwell and work and travel in the outskirts. The word functions not by going to the center of power. The center of power is incapable of being helped. So the word goes to the margins. That's why as soon as you have a big cathedral or a megachurch, there's always a danger because you become a center of power. The word goes to the margins, the actual center. And then we have the earthly centers of Satan, which we saw in the last episode, who looks like he's occupying
0: the center of power, when in fact the center of power is where there is no center. In Worldly terms, when we talk about a God existing, we point to a statue, or we point to the building of that deity. You know that the President of the United States exists when his planes fly over your country, the way you knew that Caesar existed when he marched on your land. By that measure of existence, the worldly measure, the biblical God is inexistent. But the power of the resurrected Lord is that in the presence of his enemies who rule the earth, you can't see him. But for those who have been circumcised by his teaching, he is the shadow that hangs over the room where human beings exercise power. And this is how the martyrs standing before Caesar were fearless because they would stand before Caesar as subjects of the crucified Messiah whom they claimed was resurrected, but who was not present to defend them. But they were fearless because they trusted the premise of scripture, that the father raised Jesus by the spirit from the dead, and that he was seated in power and coming to judge the living and the dead, including Caesar before whom they stood. And because they knew this fact, even though in Roman terms, you could not say that Jesus existed, he exists and held sway over the court of Caesar through the witness of the martyrs, that this one who is seated in power at the right hand of God has dominion over not only the entire realm of Caesar, but over both the living and the dead, the whole world. And this is how Matthew is bringing the fulfillment of the Torah to fruition in his story, because ultimately what Scripture wants is for the Messiah to hold sway over the entire creation, which was the intention from the beginning that all the nations would be gathered on Mount Zion before the Lord seated on his throne, the existing one. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Richard, this reminds me of something you have emphasized over and over again, the geographic movements of Jesus.
1: Right. He moved from the desert of Jordan, not into Jerusalem. He was not going to go and fight for his friend in that way. But he went to the outskirts of the Jewish territory in order to continue on with the word. Why do we have to know at all when or why Jesus moved to Galilee? The author wants to make sure we know why and when he moved to Galilee, and that's because John was thrown into prison. Interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell us Outright what his crime was, all we know that John did was preach the Word in the wilderness on the edge of the Jewish territory on the Jordan. John occupied the margin and taught the Word. Who are the other people who got into big trouble with Herod? the magi decided to go around Jerusalem on their way out of town, so the people who anger. The authorities are the ones who sit on the margins and preach like they know something and they act like they have some kind of power. Now, John didn't act like he had the kind of power that Herod had. All he did was use the power of God through the Word
0: to judge all the people who came out of Jerusalem to see him in the wilderness. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And here, Capernaum, we've said this before, a city in Galilee is the town of grace, the village of grace. Naum in Hebrew means grace. Kafir means village. It's a locality among the Gentiles, where God is shedding his grace, and it's not magic. If you want to understand grace, you have to think in terms of practical examples. Imagine someone has committed a crime, and everyone saw them commit the crime. So that person is, without question, guilty of the crime. This is not a trick. The person committed this horrible crime. And everyone knows that the person who committed this crime is deserving of death. So this person then goes before the king and falls down on their knees and begs the king for grace. Please show me your favor, your charity. The word hadis, grace and charity, it's the same concept. The idea is that it's a handout by fiat of the king, very much like a presidential pardon. It doesn't matter what you did. If the president pardons you, you're pardoned. That's grace. So you have then this place in Galilee where God is showing his favor, a place out among the Gentiles. And for Arabic speakers, the connection is explicit. I mean, in the liturgy, you have this prayer which is lifted from Paul's letters, the Arabic translation of Paul's letters, Naamatu Rabbina al Messiah, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Nam, So Anyone familiar with the language would immediately recognize this connection, that the name is constructed to draw your attention to this function, charis. So Capernaum, which is by the sea, which is the Roman sea, the sea of the whole world in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So you have this village of grace, Capernaum, out by the sea pushing across the domain of the Roman Empire and beyond. That is where the one who is seated in judgment is moving. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nethali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, So all the discussions that people have, was Galilee really a place where Gentiles lived? Didn't Jews also live in Galilee? These discussions are irrelevant because you're talking about some geographic reality in history. We're talking about how Isaiah is using the term Galilee and how Isaiah is using the term nations or Gentiles. We're not talking about The photograph that Dr. Who took when he flew back to the Holy Land in the first century to see who was living by the sea in Galilee. Zebulun and Naphtali are fairly insignificant
1: tribes. You don't hear very much about them. And the fact that they're on the border of the sea means they're far from what? Far from the center, again. So Jesus goes to the coast. Jesus goes to the far-reaching tribes. He goes beyond the Jordan. Even if he doesn't go beyond the Jordan literally, he goes beyond the Jordan literarily. He follows the text of Isaiah and he's fulfilling in Greek. It's literally he fills the words of Isaiah. Fulfill is something we say in English, but in Greek it's simply he filled the words. So he brought substance to these words. Isaiah had this vessel of words and Jesus was what gave it substance, it gave it weight filling the margins out here on the edge of the sea with the Gentiles, with Zebulun and Naphtali.
0: He's liberating the people from Caesar, from the worldly David. He's restoring David to his proper context in the narrative, but he's conquering. The reference to the sea is very important because the Romans dominated the sea. This is a very menacing verse, the way that it's being made functional by Matthew, Obviously, Isaiah is not talking about the Roman Empire. Isaiah is talking about, as Father Paul has argued, the Seleucids. He's dealing with the dominion of Alexander the Great, but Matthew is dealing with Caesar. And remember, the problem is not the Roman people. The Roman polity are not the issue. The issue is Caesar the tyrant. Scripture sees value in Roman society. Roman society is worth saving and worth holding fellowship with which is why Matthew is pushing hard as part of the pharisaic school of the new testament to bring the torah to the gentiles the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light has dawned this is the light to the nations which Jesus just used to cast out the devil It's the light of God's instruction. And Matthew is filling this teaching, to use the literal translation of the Greek, Richard, as you said, he's filling this teaching of Isaiah in the sense that in chapter 1, he taught the Romans an introduction to Hebrew so that by this point in chapter 4, they would know how to read Deuteronomy in Hebrew, or at least how to hear it. A light is a thing you carry that lights the path. And that's why it's a perfect, perfect metaphor for God's law. Because if you follow God's law, you will never fall in the trap of worshiping Caesar. And that's how scripture protects your steps. Because you will naturally want to worship Caesar because in your mind he exists because he has an army. And then suddenly you'll be under the boot of the army and you won't know what happened. Scripture is saving you all of that headache and saying you're not subject to Caesar, you're subject to the one who is seated in power.
1: No, I mean, it looks like the word is subject to Caesar. That's why Caesar's able to take John and just put him in prison if he starts getting out of line. Oops, there goes the end of the word. Okay, Jesus is gonna go out there. Well, we know what's gonna happen to Jesus. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work out well. So we can either say Jesus failed and John failed or they succeeded in a way that is different than what a Roman or any other human would say success is. This is where the gospel writers, where Matthew is trying to change our mind about what power and strength and authority are. The epiphany is not Caesar marching through your town. The epiphany is Jesus wandering into your
0: village to teach the word. And that's why the test, of your trust in the one who is seated in power is precisely how you conduct yourself when you stand before the imposter who claims to be seated in power, who claims to be a God, who claims to be the one who exists. That's the test. Will you blink when you stand before the throne of Caesar or will you shrug it off the way the martyrs did because you trust in the one who is coming in power? From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is the kingdom of which we speak, Richard, the kingdom in which he is enthroned as the master and the Archi. Do you trust in that kingdom and do you trust in his power or are you afraid by the fireworks show? That's why you shouldn't seek a miracle in order to validate your faith in God. Because then you're looking for Caesar, you're looking for a false god. The power of the witness of the martyrs is exactly that they place their trust in the one who is unseen. And that's also what makes their story so magisterial. That the god who cannot be seen subdued the Roman Empire through the witness of the martyrs who lost everything. The martyrs were unstoppable because as soon as
1: one was taken out, there were five more to take his place. So even when Jerusalem came to take John out, the word continued. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He preached the precise words that John the Baptist said. John's mouth was gone. John's mouth was no longer in the Jordan but the word remained in the Jordan because Jesus went to the Jordan and Jesus went beyond the Jordan and the word continued on and that word was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we know the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because the soldiers of the kingdom of heaven are marching through your land and marching through your village but it's not the army that bears the sword but the army that bears the word and this word is repent which means stop following the master you've been following. It's time to recognize us. We're your new masters. So now it's either going to be them or us. It's up to you. But my job is to tell you this kingdom is now null and void. It is only the kingdom of heaven that has effect in this land from now on.
0: Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too.